Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everybody. I'm Seth Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Now, whether you're looking to buy a business or you're in the market to sell, today's guest, Kobe Simmer, has you covered. Kobe is a business coach, entrepreneur, and the author of How to Build a Business Others Want to Buy. He joins us today on Flying Solo to share just what it takes to differentiate your business from its competitors and set it up for a successful sale. Hi, Kobe. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Welcome. No worries at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's my absolute pleasure. Now, let's dive into the beginning, the, gen- the genesis of, of the Kobe story. Can you tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and how you became involved in you know, uh, buying and selling businesses and coaching people around business strategy? Yeah, um, it starts way back when I was 15 years old. And uh, well, it actually starts when I was born because I was born into a, a family that had a family business. My father's an architect. Um, he was an architect with a builder's license. So we were either, he was either designing houses, buildings, um, theatres, all sorts of things, or he was building them. Um, so from a very early age, I watched my dad, you know, at the drawing board, um, you know, he was building, um, you know, models for government buildings and things like that on the dining room table. And, you know, on our, all of our family holidays, you know, we were going to site visits, having holidays with clients, out to dinner with clients. And so at kind of 15 years old, um, you know, when you start to be really influenced by your surroundings, um, what I didn't have was I didn't have, um, you know, a parent that was going to work every day, um, you know, at, at a job. I had someone who was basically running a business 24-7. Um, so, and that was what I, you know, that was the person I looked up to. Um, unfortunately that was the, you know, the, the peak of the eighties when the, you know, everything was raging and high interest rates and high inflation. And, you know, it's kind of, um, it's funny to, uh, maybe see history repeating itself at the moment. Um, but, I don't know about funny, Kobe. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, ironic maybe is a better choice of uh, uh, word from my vocabulary there, but, um, it, it's interesting, you know, I'm finding it, you know, ironic, interesting. Um, you know, to watch some of those similar things. But my dad's business collapsed with the collapse of the construction industry and um, we lost our family home. So I guess what um, I saw in, you know, in that moment was, you know, that how would I basically take control of my destiny? I've been self-funded since I was 15 years old. Um, and so, you know, whether I was working a part-time job um, or, you know, having a go at trying to start businesses from a very early age, um, you know, it was all about taking control of my destiny. And I haven't really had uh, a financial leg up from anybody. Um, I'm, I'm 100% self-made. And so along my journey of experimenting, it's always been about, um, you know, first and foremost, I'm passionate about serving people and I love putting a smile on someone's face. And um, and then on top of that is is having uncapped potential. I don't, I don't 
behave and perform very well in an environment that has, you know, walls and constraints. Um, I'm not real good at the, either the school game, the education system game or the political game in corporate. Um, and so um, I really actually didn't have a choice. <laughs> so, so here we are, um, you know, whatever it is, 30, you know, 30 odd years later, 35 years later, um, you know, in a, in a situation where, you know, I've, I've grown business, started at businesses, failed at business, um, you know, been involved in, you know, acquisitions and divestments and, and, uh, and ultimately, um, you know, I built a business that was a very conscious decision that it would eventually sell. Um, you know, so we were constantly focusing on the valuation and, uh, and one of those businesses sold in, uh, in 2022, which was quite exciting. So it was good to kind of start that one, take it all the way through to fruition and, um, and do the exit. And we've got a few other irons in the fire um, at the moment. But um, yeah, so I coach and advise people nowadays on, um, you, know, you know, basically the lessons that I've learned along the way. Um, and, you know, maybe on some of the things that, you know, these are the stepping stones that I stepped on, you know, to, to get my, you know, get myself down the path and you can step on the same ones or let's have a look at the ones that you want to step on and, and, and let's see if I can see, you know, some maybe better ways to do things or, uh, and or some, you know, some warning um, to people who might be, you know, about to make, you know, significant mistakes. And, and we're seeing some great success in, in some of the businesses I'm working with. So a lot of small business owners start their business from a hobby or a side hustle that kind of eventually turns into a business. So do you have any kind of advice for them about uh, how they can transform that side side hustle into a successful and profitable venture? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, my first piece of advice is that sometimes those side hustles will never make you a billion dollars and it's never going to. And I think that Unfortunately, social media is maybe convincing us that every single idea that we have or side hustle, side hustle we have will be the next unicorn and make us a lot of money. And that is just simply not the case. So I think the first piece of advice is look around and see if that product or service um, is serving a lot of people and has the potential for a lot of revenue. And then the second thing is to look at whether that you know product or service um, is is able to be made profitable. And I think that we are convinced by, you know, people that we can now see very obviously, we can see a lot of, you know, you know business people are becoming rock stars in, in some instances, um, that we, we fall into the trap, our brains help us fall into the trap of thinking that we can be better, better quality um, and, and better in whatever way than our competition and cheaper, but we fall into the trap of the assumption that our competitor is profitable. And it may be the profitability constraints that are causing our competitor to be poor quality. So any you know, side hustle or hobby can be turned into a way of bringing in income. Um, but you know, to, to, to create generational wealth, um, uh, uh, you know, money that can be used to, to life, you know, fund life, if you like, um, we need to maybe have a little bit of a careful look around us. And, there's, you know, you can do lots of Googling. You can buy books. You can, you know, maybe try and buy some books, you know, that have been written by somebody who has done that product or service or industry or, or is solving the same problem. So sometimes our side hustle or our small business is an alternative solution to a problem. Um, and, you know, we can often come up with that. And I think that we've really got to look at, you know, uh, are people, you know, easily able to hand over money to have their problem solved or get the benefit they're looking for 
And, you know, if you can see that happening, then it's a good idea. But if you can't see that happening and you're kind of going, scratching your head going, you know, where are the potential people that might readily give me money um, for, for in exchange for the benefits that I offer them? And I'm being very conscious to not talk about features or the product or the service because when people exchange money, they're looking for the benefit that they get from your product or service. They're not looking for the, you know, the specific, they're not looking for a red car. They're looking for a car that makes them feel amazing, that gets them from A to B, that they're proud of, and it just happens to be red. Um, mm, so, yeah. you know, um, so we've got to focus in on the benefits. Does, is that helpful? Yeah, no, that is helpful. I'm also wondering about, would it need to be either, you know, a business that's first in class or best in class or, or maybe it's cheapest in class? Are those kind of the things that you need to focus on as well? Yeah, look, I, I think... Um, you know, if we just keep coming back to the, you know, the best in class, first in class kind of concepts that we can spend a lot of time trying to educate a potential customer um, on why our product or service is great, but there will be a subconscious block for that customer if we're cheaper. The easiest way to differentiate yourself in a marketplace where it's crowded and there's lots of opportunities if you are genuinely the best in class, then you need to be the most expensive and, and the most expensive price. And it doesn't need to be by a lot, but price is the easiest way and the simplest way to differentiate quality. And it saves a lot of effort and, and, and breath and talking and educating the marketplace. And so it, and, and then when you are, you know, if the, and there will be customers in the marketplace that want the better quality solution, um, you know, just, just look at smartphones, for example. Um, you know, the, the, the differentiator is obviously on price. And yes, there's a thousand features in a Samsung, but Apple still outsells um, Samsungs. And in most cases, they're more expensive. So, um, so I think it would be wise to consider being the most expensive price and then focus on being best in class and best product. Because sometimes our ego tells us we're the best and we're not necessarily the best. And, you know, you know, and, and I think that we, you know, when we are the most expensive, then we also are then, you know, subconsciously holding ourselves accountable to actually delivering on that, you know, egotistical principle, which we're best in class, first in class, best quality, etc. Why do you think so many business owners are averse to being the most expensive? Like they're worried about being the one that charges the most for their product or the service? Um, I think it comes down to the, you know, the, one of the fundamental fears, fears that we have in humanity, and that is the fear of rejection. And I think that it's easier to say, but I'm cheaper, um, than actually to say, you know, I am super passionate about you as a customer. I'm super passionate about solving this problem, about being, you know, the, you know, you know, giving you the best food on the plate that is organic, that is, you know, uh, gives you an amazing experience when you come to my restaurant and that is why we are more expensive. Um, and so it gives us the opportunity to have the best chefs, the, the best kitchens, the best equipment, the best raw ingredients to make sure that you have the best experience when you come here for your special occasion. Um, you know, it gives us the opportunity to have great tablecloths and polished cutlery and, you know, and make sure our food hygiene standards are very high. Uh, when we're the cheapest, then we're, you know, we're leaving things out of the product or service. 
Um, and I think that fear of rejection is certainly, you know, one of the most common things I come across with small business owners when I'm teaching them sales and how to sell because we, we're all scared, scared of selling or being accused of being a salesperson because there's a bunch of salespeople out there that have, you know, that have given sales a bad reputation, that it's, you know, that it's creepy, that it's a scam, that it's slimy. But a genuine salesperson who is a professional will pull away from a potential customer very quickly if they don't believe they can absolutely service the client's desires or the benefits that they're looking for. Um, and it's only the people that really are, you know, are clutching for revenue um, or, you know, grasping for revenue that, you know, give sales a bad name. And I think that that combination of, I don't want to be accused of being a salesperson and I hate selling. And actually I'm, you know, quietly when I'm, you know, by myself in my office or sitting at my desk, I'm scared of being, you know, rejected. And, and we're putting ourselves out there and being vulnerable when we're coming up with a product or service and, and creating this beautiful little business. And, you know, we're being vulnerable and, and, and customers, you know, businesses are full contact sport and customers can be harsh. And so we don't want to get that negative feedback. And, and so, um, you know, and, and, and in a lot of cases, that's why small businesses stay small. Now, I'd like to take a detour into your book now. Yes. Um, you've, you've recently penned a new, a new book. It's called uh, How to Build a Business Others Want to Buy. So why was it time for you to write that book? Uh, it's actually a, um, a project that we've been working on for a number of years. It took about five years to come to fruition. Um, and I, I guess first and foremost was I actually had the time, um, you know, after doing a successful exit, um, I really wanted to have a handbook uh, that I had been working on for a number of years, but I wanted to have a handbook that I could give, you know, managers and, and team leaders that were working in my businesses um, something to work with that were all the concepts and principles that we talk about in meetings and training internally. And, and then one of my friends actually said to me, you know, um, I'd love to get a copy of that. And, and I said, well, you know, we can kind of, you know, I can knock something out for you. And we kind of started. And, and then I met a beautiful lady by the name of Bernadette Schwert, who wrote The Secrets of Online Entrepreneurs. And she actually um, has quite a lot of, has had quite a lot of success with that book. And she said, look, Kobe, I, I think I better help you with this project um, because they're great principles and, and they're absolutely fantastic concepts. Um, but I can actually put the words together so that it's really easy for somebody to consume. And so we've worked together over the last 18 months on the project um, and, and, and brought it to fruition. And, um, and so I think, you know, A, having the time and B, you know, starting to do some investing um, and it's certainly going to be uh, well it is a requirement for the businesses that I have invested in so far um, that their leadership teams actually embrace some of the principles in the book I was like a manual if you like um, and you know I absolutely want people to to take um, this great book it's I think it's about 360 pages or 365 pages it ended up um, and it's a textbook you know it's well it's not a text as such it reads very well but it becomes the manual that you can write all over and fold the corners of the pages and put post-it notes in and, and be, you know, going back to those, you know, recipes, formulas, procedures, policies, if you like, um, you know, from time to time when challenges come up, when you're, when you're trying to manage and run and grow and scale your business. Um, and it's got this um, underlying element, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm concerned that there's a bunch of businesses that are, you know, in the process of closing, you know, over the next 12 to 24 months because the baby boomer that started the business hasn't got anyone to hand it over to and doesn't actually 
either know that they can sell that business or B, that it's got any value or worth and they're just kind of selling up their equipment, you know, finishing up their lease and closing their doors. And, you know, I'd like to inspire people to kind of start with the end in mind, which is, you know, maybe you could actually sell this business down the track. You don't have to by any means. It's This is how to build a business. But if you build a business with the principles of potentially selling it down the track, it actually makes it quite healthy and, and a business that's in a saleable condition is also not one that's stopping you from going on holidays or going to the book parade at the primary school or spending time with your family or taking three months off to look after your, your, your parent that's, um, you know, that's ailing. So I think those common complaints of small business, which I'm tied to it, I can't take leave, I don't, you know, don't get any revenue or money when you know, I'm away. If we build in those principles and we focus on a business, you know, that, that potentially becomes a saleable condition, it's got value, looks after itself, potentially gets to a point where it grows itself, and you can have that lifestyle that you dreamed of having when you started your business. Let's um, dive into that a little more then. So what what is it you think makes a business worth buying? Are there particular metrics that I should be looking for if if I'm going, oh, hey, I woke up this morning and I want to buy a business. What, <laughs> what, what should potential buyers be commonly looking for from a business? Yeah, look, I think, um, um, you know, we, we can look at that from two sides. So we can say, hey, I've got a business. I'm, I'm running a business. I'm a small business owner and, and I'm not quite sure what I need to focus on. Or I can say, hey, I'm interested in buying a business. You know, maybe I don't want to start a business from scratch. I want to buy one or I want to be an investor. So I think the best the best way I can say there's a bunch of metrics and we've included 21 metrics in the book, but I want to start with this kind of framework. If I give you a million dollars to invest, I want you to go and find somewhere to put it that gives a fair return each year. And you've got a bunch of options. You can obviously go and buy a, you could say, for example, go and buy some real estate, like a you know, residential real estate, which is a house or an apartment or whatever. And somebody could rent it and, and you'll get rental income each week. Um, you could go and buy um, some blue chip shares um, and you'll get pretty poor dividends, you know, every six months from, um, from that company because it's listed on, you know, and it's listed on the stock exchange. You could potentially go to a private equity firm and, and they'll take your money and go and find things to invest it in and pay you some interest each year. Um, sorry, each month, I apologize. Um, and so when we are looking at, you know, what we're looking for in businesses, then you're saying, well, hang on a minute. Okay, let me have a look at this business. If I buy this business for a million dollars, how much profit is it going to give me at the end of each month? And and without actually having to work in that, because remember, you've got the million dollars. You're not looking for it. We didn't say we want a job. We want to go and buy a business. We don't want to go and buy a job. There's plenty of jobs out there. We can just go and get one. We don't have to actually pay for it. So, so it needs to have, and, and let me give you a really round, simple number, it needs to have at least a 10% return per annum. So that business needs to make 10% at least net profit per annum. And there's you know special terms like EBITDA that go with that. But it needs to throw off about $100,000 a year of net profit for, in exchange for no effort, because remember the money was the effort. And so if you're also gonna work in that business, then you need to think about what the wage or salary is that you would, um, you know, be asking for. Is it a hundred thousand dollars? Is it two hundred thousand dollars? Is it is it fifty thousand dollars? So the business needs to also, in the absence of the previous owner or the previous operator, throw off that money as well. And so we're looking for 
And then you're starting to say, well, where does the work come from? You know, uh, how do all the clients come from? How do we, you know, where do the customers come? Where do the sales come from? So businesses that have customers that buy on a regular basis, or even better, they're contracted to buy on a regular basis over, say, a three-year period, um, if they've got, say, recurring revenue is, is the term we use, then they're more attractive. And some of those businesses can attract higher multiples of profit. Um, and so, you know, we can start looking at those businesses and saying, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, like, for example, um, businesses that I see buy and sell a lot lately, are pool cleaning businesses, uh, landscape gardening maintenance, you know, lawn mowing run businesses, um, you know, not super sexy, you know, kind of businesses, but they, they've got customers that they just go and see every week, you know, every two weeks in summertime or, you know, once a month in winter, and they've just got this recurring revenue. And, you know, you, you can add more customers and scale the business or you can just service the existing customers you've got. And as they turn over, replace, you know, you lose a customer to, or the, you know, they sell their house and move or whatever, and you get the next customer. Um, and so, you know, that those kinds of examples, we're looking for things like that, you know, profit, the business has to be profitable in the absence of, you know, um, you know, the, the money for the owner operator. Um, and, it, and ideally, we're looking for businesses or coaching people to add in elements to their business of recurring revenue or subscriptions, if you like. Um, so yeah. that sales pipeline should be scalable in a way. Yeah, in a way. And, and, you know, I was recently involved in a business that was just purely projects. And it was like project after project after project. And, you know, through COVID, it did quite well because um, it was doing local manufacturing um, and China, we couldn't get anything out of China. And so it did quite well, you know, work, working on projects through the COVID period um, because international trade was very difficult. But as soon as the international borders opened back up and we could get things out of China, that business collapsed and, and it didn't have any form of repetitive repeat business. Um, so a low value, in fact, you know, no one was interested in buying it because there was, you know, all right, what, you know, what are we pricing, you know, and it was, and it was project-based manufacturing. What are we pricing? When are we pricing it? And, um, you know, and, and where, do the, where does the work come from? And it didn't, you know, it fell apart because it didn't have a repeat, you know, kind of product or service that a customer consumes or buys regularly or frequently. Um, and, um, yeah, as a consequence, it's, you know, that's the negative end of the, the situation is when these businesses fail and close. So, yeah, that's that, those are the kinds of things that we're looking for. So on the flip side, if I'm the business owner, are there particular pitfalls or are there common mistakes that business owners might make when they're trying to sell their business? I don't know, like maybe they've undervalued their business or they haven't taken into account their own role in the business or, or yeah. I'm sure you have much better idea than I do. Yeah, yeah. The, the very, this one, this is the very first one. This is by far the most common mistake and a very easy one to make is uh, we're all frustrated, scared, um, you know, angry about having to pay tax. Uh, and so small business owners often do things in their business to avoid paying tax. Like, you know, I, I was just on the phone to somebody and they told me that the local hardware store that's near where I live right now is having a huge sale today. Um, it's just, you know, before the end of the financial year to, to try to get all the local tradespeople to come in and buy lots of new tools so that they can write them off on tax um, before the end of the financial year. Now, I would be advising all of those tradespeople to not buy those tools today. I would be advising them to buy them in the first week of the financial year, not the last week of the financial year. 
And, and the reason for that is I want them to have the most profitable business as possible, um, pay the tax that you need to pay. And, and so what's happening is a lot of small business owners will, you know, they just maybe occasionally go to Woolworths and, you know, buy a trolley load of groceries and, and, and put it through their business or go on holidays and put the petrol through the, you know, the, or the diesel for their vehicle, you know, they're going on a driving holiday through the business. Or they might be a tradie and they might say, you know what, I've got a few remote work sites, I'm going to buy a caravan and I'm going to put that through the business. Look out, ATO will be after you. <laughs> 100%, and it's not so much that the ATO is going to be after you because, you know, you can often, you know, you can come up with very legitimate excuses to do this. Um, but what it does is it causes the business to be less profitable and it causes cash flows to be, you know, cash is spent on things that are not there that actually help earn an income. They're ancillary, you know, they're, they're extra tools that, yeah, okay, it's great to have that extra tool, it's handy, but it's not used every single day, um, you know, and the caravan's used for holidays. And so the business suffers a couple of things. The first is it suffers unnecessary expenses, which are legitimately unnecessary. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's all done with the intent, intention of minimizing tax. Um, not avoiding tax because avoiding tax is illegal, but minimising tax and and a lot of it's very legitimate uh, expenses. But but as a consequence, the business is not profitable. Now, businesses by and large, investors who buy people that buy businesses are looking for future profit, either future profit from the profits that you're by buying the profits that you're making, or they can kind of add their business to your business and and have you know one plus one equals three and have something different that they can offer the market that customers really love. And so the number one mistake is putting personal expenses that while they can be justified through the business to make the business less profitable, we should absolutely be focusing on profitability and trying to make our small businesses as profitable as possible. And, and that brings up this, this kind of concept of mindset, which is it's, it's, um, you know, it's kind of bragging to talk about how profitable your business is at, the, at a dinner party or a barbecue. Um, it's okay as an entrepreneur to kind of talk about revenue, but there's this kind of, you know, unwritten rule that says no one talks about profitability because, you know, that's actually fully exposing yourself to how successful you actually are. Um, and, and revenue is vanity. So you hear people talk about great revenue and all the revenue that they're doing. That's vanity. Profit is sanity. And so, you know, that is the number one mistake. Try to avoid putting any ancillary expenses through your business. Um, pay your tax at the right rate. Get some advice on, you know, how to help make your business as profitable as possible. Don't instantly write off equipment, put it on the, on the balance sheet and depreciate it. And it'll let you do things like have, you know, borrow more money for mortgages to invest in real estate and borrow money for plant and equipment to grow the business and scale the business. Um, and, it, and it makes the business a lot more healthy. If I was looking to sell my business, what would be some effective ways to market the business so that I could attract the best uh, potential buyers? You're looking for um, a, a sale to a competitor will always probably be, you know, the, the, the lower end of the pricing spectrum. Um, looking for somebody who can sell their products to your customers. They will often pay more for a business than, you know, just a straight competitor. So a straight competitor is looking for market share and they're going to try and get that as cheap as possible. But if you've got a great customer list or a great set of contacts and you know that somebody can easily make a bunch of money by selling their product or service easily to your customers, same contact person, same, you know, you know if it's business to business or, or business to consumer, it's complementary to what you do. 
those are the kinds of people that um, you know will always pay more um, because they're looking for this cross-sell um, up opportunity. If you can also ensure, you know, explore the concept, and we haven't got a huge amount of time to talk about it, but explore the concept of being cash positive in your business instead of cash negative. So, uh, collect your um, collect your money from your customer at exactly the time you provide the product or service, or even a little bit before. Um, um, it's definitely not a good idea to be collecting money from your customer a month after you've pro provided the product or service, or seven days, or fourteen day terms, or thirty day terms. Um, you know, those are, you've got to fund your customer for those 30 days before they hand over their money. So, you know, if you can, if you can be looking for, you know, products or services that are complement, really complementary to yours, that you can see that there's an amazing opportunity, like your customers just haven't bought that thing and you know, they're going to buy that thing. They'll be the people, you know, to market towards. And then once you identify that kind of group of, of potential buyers, then we can kind of talk about exactly how we would market to them. Would we just ring them up and say, hey, I've got this great business. I can see that your customers, you know, uh, your product or service would be sold to a bunch of my customers. I think, you know, bringing the two things together, having conversations would be a really great thing because you guys can make a bunch of money. Earlier, you mentioned uh, landscape businesses, you know, the gardeners, that sort of thing, quite a boom in those at the moment. So are there any other specific industries or types of businesses that tend to be more attractive to potential buyers? Yes. I've got a poodle and everybody through COVID bought a cavoodle or a poodle or a, you know, <laughs> allergy, allergy free dog. And there is an incredible opportunity right now to uh, have a national brand of poodle parlors slash cavoodle parlors. Um, these cute little fluffy things. And I've got one sitting on the floor of my office right now, a little black and white poodle. I went to the groomer yesterday um, and got all fluffed up and zhuzhed and, you know, he's very soft and fluffy and smells lovely and came home with a bandana around his neck. Um, you know, that is, that dog needs to have, you know, the hundred dollar makeover once a month um, for his life, you know, and, and having a great, you know, timely service where the dog's dropped off and pick, you know, the dog's not hanging around for more than about two minutes, um, gets its wash and clip and, you know, nails done and blow dry and, and baby powder and bandana and out the door because um, you've got an anxious, you know, mother of, of pet or parent of pet hanging around, you know, waiting for their cute little cutie pie and they don't want their little cutie pie to be anxious. They're, that is a massive opportunity right now. Um, and it's, and it's that's a, a business area that we're looking at investing in. Um, and, um, and, and I think it's underserviced and I think there is an incredible amount of these cute little animals running around in the community that, um, with a great product or service, you know, on a subscription where someone just pays every month, has this, has the rolling booking, um, you know, it's, it, it's a no brainer. And so there's a few kind of like that, um, you know, they're not, you know, it's, there, there's obviously, of course, some really incredible industries, you know, that, that present really well on things like Instagram, you know, um, fashion. Um, and all the aspects of fashion and sunglasses and clothes and holidays and, you know, you know, um, you know, fancy cars and, you know, fancy houses and all that kind of stuff. But there's some service based industries that I think have, that, that have got a real opportunity um, to be to be really done well. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, dental hygiene and just cleaning, you know, you, I don't know whether you need and I don't know much about dentistry, but I don't know if you need the full on dentist to just go in and get a clean. Um, you know, and, and, and a look over, but again, that's a, you know, that's a service-based recurring revenue kind of business. So, 
Now, it's not just you know about dogs and landscaping and swimming pools. Um, you know, it could be a particular food. You know, the who gives a crap people are doing really well with their toilet paper subscription. Um, Amazon, you know, having a look at Amazon and seeing what you can buy as a subscription on Amazon is a really good indicator of the things that people are buying because Amazon offers it as a, you know, you can just get a box of toilet paper delivered by Amazon every month. You place the order and you never have to touch it. It just shows up. Um, so those kinds of things that we're using every day um, are, are really great opportunities. And, and with obviously with COVID, um, it was a significant step forward for the community to be confident in buying online. A little bit of objection to it, but even my mother-in-law is buying things online now, you know, and, and, um, and so I think that that, that significant change is, is helping for some of these subscription opportunities to come up. So say everything's gone to plan and I've found someone to buy my business, how do I make sure that I'm negotiating the right price that, you know, it's going to be a fair outcome for both me and the person I'm selling the business to? The first thing is um, look at reverse engineer a year or two years after you've sold the business. How much money, you know, did you get on, say, for example, day one? Um, you know, was there a, a, a at-risk component or an earn-out component, um, you know, you know, on the, uh, you know, for six or 12 or 18 or 36 months after the transaction? And, and think about what you're going to do with that money. Is it, oh, I just want to get out of it. I'm sick and tired of it. I've, I'm done with this. I've been doing it a long time and I'm, I, I just want to get out. And I'm just trying to get, you know, a little bit of fair remuneration for that. Or do I genuinely have something that's worth money? Um, because what I see in terms of a price, you will have a absolutely price and you'll have a no price. And if they offer you, you know, a number that's a low price and you're like, no way, I'm not selling it for that. Um, so I think it's important to, in your own mind, before you, of course, you can go and get external you know, advice. There's plenty of people out there that will help you get a rough value for your business and, and you know, compare it to other businesses that have been sold. But it does come down to, you know, how will you be using that money? Because you're essentially, you're selling, you know, let's call them shares, if you like, and, you, and you'll be paid. Um, and so really, you've got to be happy with, you know, that your financial situation post-transaction and exit. Um, there's other things too. People are like, ah, oh, you know, you don't sell your baby and how will you feel if you sell your baby? Forget that. Uh, what are you going to do with the money? Um, are you going to make more money with the money or are you going to be happy with, you know, a lower rate? And often people that sell businesses, they then invest in things that don't make as much money as their business made and they have this realisation. I had that realisation, um, you know, with one of the exits that we did that um, we're like, right, let's get out of this and, you know, we've, We've done it and moved on, but we couldn't find anything to invest in that gave us the same return. So it's something to, you know, kind of, it was a really interesting lesson that we learned. So in terms of the price and, and, and kind of, you know, how we then start negotiating, have your absolutely yes, if it's that price, I'll sell, if, and, but have your absolutely no and, and have your kind of, you know, upper and lower numbers, if you like. Then as far as the negotiation is concerned, you can get people to be involved in your um, negotiation process. And, and I would strongly suggest using a commercial lawyer, um, like a proper commercial lawyer that, that deals in business law. And I always have a lawyer on the team, um, you know, when we're, when we're just running businesses, but also, um, or involved in the team, running businesses or doing transactions. 
um, a guy that you know I've been working with for a number of years and we work really well together. He's not expensive um, by any means. In fact, um, you know, very reasonably priced and and you know very productive. So I think a lot of people are scared to kind of talk to lawyers because they're going to cost them a lot of money. But basically, it could cost you your business and you could get no money for it. Um, and the buyer is looking for the absolute best price, like most people, you know, looking for the cheapest price. Um, and you're looking for the best price, and so you know, then you know, then you can start getting into the nitty gritty of a of a contractual document, and that could be a one pager. I've seen a business recently transact on one A4 page of, of you know, dot dot dot, and a and a set of keys for the for the factory unit, you know, sticky taped to that one page, and everyone signed it, and that was it. Um, but I've also seen you know, um, you know, contracts that are a full ream of paper. Um, you know, and and you know, five sorry, fifty versions of, of, of that ream of paper, and it's you know taking six months to kind of negotiate the, where the full stops go. Imagine reading that. <laughs> oh, it's hard. It's hard. Look, it, it's you know becomes a you know in those moments of um, due diligence and contractual negotiations, you know, become quite stressful, and and um, and and you know, I don't want to go through it too often, but um, you, you get better and better at it each time, but. Um, yeah, it's, I think in terms of negotiation, make sure you've got somebody who's got experience in transacting on your team, uh, so that you, you know, someone can show you the footsteps, you know, the, the foot stepping stones to step on. Um, although that might not have been exactly the industry, but somebody on your side who you pay uh, that helps you with it, um, and then um, you know, only take advice from people that have experience. Um, and I think that's you know, generally across business. Uh, something that we can do fall into the trap of but you know if someone's actually done it then they're going to be more likely to give you the right advice than somebody who hasn't done it and there's plenty of you know people out there advisors and consultants who have got absolutely no experience doing it themselves plenty doing it for other people um, but I think that that's a you know that that's a good formula and I'll only use people on my team that have have done the thing that I need them to do before um, and done it well and can show me a positive result. Now, can I also ask you about timing? Because you mentioned earlier in this chat all the baby boomers who are getting towards that retirement age and going to be shutting up their shops and their businesses and probably without the thought that they could sell the business. So firstly, um, how important is timing in that? In that, like, Can you, you have got to the point where, oh, now it's too late, you can't sell it now? Or And the other thing is, something you also brought up which was exit strategy should we be starting our business with an exit strategy in mind yeah i think um a couple of things um definitely um um right now and and, and it'll change but if you if you were to sell your business right now you're not going to get a, um a price that you might have got for it two or three years ago um so when when the stock exchange is down stock exchanges are down or share prices are down, um, that is actually a signal that, you know, institutional investors are looking to go back into that market. And so that, you know, when when share prices are going high, then they you know, the institutional investors are looking to sell those shares and move out to other areas where the pricing is low. So um, of course there's still people looking to buy businesses at the moment because you know business valuations have cooled off a bit as as have you know has as has real estate as has stocks because investors are saying hang on a minute I made a bunch of money I'm looking for low pricing and Warren Buffett's the you know the 
um, the, the best person I think to follow in terms of, you know, buying and selling businesses. He's like, I look for businesses that are cheap. <laughs> um, so your business will be cheaper right now. So I think timing, um, th th there's one other aspect of timing, which is very important. And this is a question for your accountant. So anyone listening to this, go and get some advice from your accountant about when would be the best time for you to sell your business based on your age. And the reason why I say that is there are in, in different jurisdictions, um, in a, both in Australia, New Zealand, and in the US, the UK, there's different, in different jurisdictions, the tax rate can be different based on your age. And uh, the older you get, the better the situation gets. And so you might find yourself uh, you know, in your 60s looking to sell your business and you won't pay any tax on that transaction. You will get a, a, an enormous capital gains tax discount. And so you may find that the accountant says, you know what, if you just hold on for two more years, then you'll be able to sell your, your business and you won't pay any tax on the proceeds of the sale. So um, most businesses will sell with a 50% capital gains tax discount, depending on how the tax transaction happens. So, you know, if the top tax rate for you while you're running your business is 46%, it means that you'll be selling your business and the proceeds will be taxed at say 22.5%. So it's something that's really important to consider in terms of timing. So while, yes, it may be too late um, and you might not get a high price, waiting a year, the price might drop, but you won't pay any tax. So the net amount of money you get will actually be more. So it's a really interesting conversation to look at timing. Um, and so um, I, I think that that is something that's worth um, you know, considering. Um, and definitely getting some advice from your accountant. And if your account, accountant just has a blank look on your face, on their face, then maybe have a bit of a look around for you know business transaction accountant or one of the largest suburban accountancy firms rather than your local you know above the chicken shop accountant, if that makes sense. Um, now the next um, question was around exit starting business with exit strategy. Absolutely yes, I think that um, even if the exit strategy is sell all my stock, finish my lease, um, get rid of all my furniture, uh, uh, stop talking to my customers, uh, finish my mobile phone contract, close up and retire and go and move to sunny Queensland. That's an exit strategy. Or, um, you know, sell the business or hand the business over to a, you know, a son or a daughter or a nephew or a niece or a brother or a sister um, or the management or sell it out to the management team or step back and let the managers step up and do a management buyout. I, I think that um, we should always be having that conversation. And in, in the day-to-day -day reactivity of running a business, it's hard to kind of stop and think about that and work on the business. But yes, we should be thinking about our exit strategy. And, and most importantly, um, something I said to my wife um, about four years ago um, with the bigger business that we, that we built, um, I, I said to her, look, if something happens to me, We've got this non-executive advisory board, Andrew and Greg. All you got to do is go to Andrew and Greg and say, "Please run this thing for me and and sell it." You know, and they they would have been able to run the business for you know for kind of six or twelve months um, in my absence if something significant, you know, like if I you know if I died, for example. And so I think that you know having somebody, if you've got you know a young family and and you're kind of the breadwinner, um, I think having somebody who can step in, you know, if you're a plumber or an electrician having another plumber or electrician that can kind of come in and take over and help run your business so that your, your spouse or your partner, um, you know, still gets the kind of income in the short term, um, you know, and so the exit strategy, you know, 
a, an intended exit strategy, but also the, oh my God, you know, um, something significant's happened exit strategy or management strategy or, or a business continuity plan, let's call it that. It's very uh, shaky economic times at the moment. There's a lot of pressure on businesses. It's getting harder and harder to raise capital. So are there any kind of insights or creative approaches that you might have to securing funding while, you know, the person is still actively in the business and maintaining control over the business? Yeah, look, um, my, these are my rules and this is my opinion. Rule number one, never raise capital. <laughs> Uh, um, and, and, and rule number two is never raise capital. Um, and, and the reason for that is that um, the, the, the issue is that in raising capital, there's obviously a number of different ways to do it. But the first is the traditional way, which is like, you know, I'm going to raise some capital and uh, um, essentially I'm going to you know, get an investor to come in. And then that investor is basically going to, you know, um, essentially own part of my business. So the first thing, the first question is, is that person going to own part of your business or is that person going to be lending money to your business? And so if it's a loan, what's the rate? You know, what is the expected, expected payback? Um, if that person's going to be investing in your business, say, you know, say, for example, a million dollars, they're going to be wanting a return and, and they're going to push you pretty hard on, all right, I want my $100,000 a year of interest back. Um, you know, or returns on my investment. And by the way, I'm going to want my million dollars back in three years or four years or five years. Um, actually, I want my million dollars to be $20 million in three or four or five years because I want you to be a unicorn. And that for an entrepreneur is very distracting when you're trying to ultimately focus on customers or growing a business or building a product or service. And so I, I often ask the question, I'm not saying necessarily don't raise capital, but really challenge why you want to raise capital and most people that come to me and say, hey, you know, I want you to invest in the business. I'll say, what for? They say, well, you know, I kind of, I've got rent due and, you know, um, my wife wants to go on a holiday and I want to take some equity off the table. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, I'll lend you a million dollars or sorry, I'll invest a million dollars. Um, I'm going to want $10,000 a month. And they're like, what? I'm like, well, I want $10,000 a month. As an investor, I'm looking for cash flow. And they're like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you $10,000 a month. I might be able to sell the business in five years' time and, and you know, give you $2 million. I'm like, you're not getting my money. So when you say it's shaky, that's why. Because, you know, guys like me that are investing are saying, well, I want return on my investment. And so it's very distracting for an entrepreneur. And so my response is, well, why can't you just go and get some money from customers? You should always, if you're thinking about raising customers, sorry, if you're thinking about raising capital, ask yourself the question, how could I get money from customers? Could I do a pre-launch? Can I do a rapid launch? Can I do a pre-sale? Can I do a, some kind of pre-buy? Can I do a deposit? The best way to grow a business and to um, you know, liquefy a business, if you like, um, get capital injections into a business is to get the money from customers. It holds you accountable for getting your product or service finished. It holds you accountable for getting your product or service out to the market. Um, it stops you being lazy and complacent. Raise cap, you've got you know, millions of dollars worth of capital in the bank. I guarantee you'll be complacent. And the only reason you're not complacent is your investors will be driving you to get your product or service out there. But at the end of the day, you have to end up servicing your customer. You have to end up getting revenue in from customers. So why not start now? And that's always for small businesses, focus on the customer. Let's just get, at least get part of the benefit to the customer or 
part of the you know, problem solved for the customer so that we can generate revenue as quickly and as early as possible. Then we can start working on making that profitable. Then we actually have a real business. Otherwise, we're just kind of playing in the sandpit, building sandcastles with someone else's sand. Great advice, Kobe. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited to have had you on and I would love to know how listeners can get a hold of your book. Where can they find it? Yeah, so um, How to Build a Business Others Want to Buy. Um, my name's Kobe Simmet. It's available right now on Booktopia uh, for pre-sale. You get a lovely little discount if you get it. Um, if, you, if you jump onto Booktopia now, it'll be available on Amazon. Uh, it'll absolutely be available in most of the bricks and mortar um, bookstores. Uh, around the country and then we'll see how it goes if it goes really well then some of the other countries will start picking it up if you've got international listeners listening but you can definitely get it on booktopia right now um, all of my handles are kobe simmet on instagram facebook linkedin etc and the link to booktopia is in my profiles awesome thank you so much kobe thank you for joining me thanks for having me it's been amazing and i hope everybody goes really well and builds amazing businesses <laughs> Me too. Bye.